The Guardian. Sexism, ownership and videotape. Welcome to The Guardian, Australia's culture podcast, the fried chicken episode. Today we're going to be asking, is comedy the last battleground for sexism? Why don't documentaries get the same love that feature films get? And who actually owns art? It's April 2015. I'm Alex Spring. I write about arts and culture for The Guardian Australia, and I'm joined today by some great guests. Firstly, Monica Tan, our deputy culture editor, who is currently trying out to be a hard-nosed reporter on the news desk. Hi, Monica. Hi. Our first special guest, Michael Safi, one of The Guardian Australia's erstwhile reporters, who is putting Monica through her paces. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? And our second special guest... And another Michael, comedian and artist Michael Workman, who has just departed Melbourne Comedy Festival, is about to embark on Sydney Comedy Festival and then goes to Perth. Welcome, Michael. It's good to be here. Last week, when Monica came into the office, she announced that she had just seen one of the worst shows of her life. She had been to see Australian comedian Jim Jeffries. Monica, what happened? I just want to firstly say that um, I'm not the kind of person who would usually walk out of a show. You know, I I like to think that I have a higher tolerance for all sorts of weird, offensive art, or at least, you know, the kind of art that a lot of people would find offensive or boring. I kind of, um, I'm I'm kind of, I would like to say I'm a pretty easygoing um, patron, you know, I, I can take a lot of things and I'm willing to kind of sit through a lot of things just to see where it's going, what it, you know, and I like, I don't mind being provoked. And, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I did notice that the before the show started, there were so many men in this audience um, and, you know, it's... I, did, I kind of didn't think much of it at the time, but later on it really... It kind of I was reminded of, of this fact that the, the audience was predominantly men. And so Jim Jeffries gets on stage and he starts this bit about Bill Cosby, who, you know, recently has had a lot of rape allegations or sexual assault allegations um, against him. And his joke was basically you know, why haven't we heard from these women? Why have we only heard from them 30 years later? Isn't it because it's not that bad to be sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby, right? So his whole shtick is, oh, it's just a funny story to kind of wake up after you've been drugged and, you know, being fingered by Bill Cosby or or what have you. Um, which, you know, and some, some bits were kind of funny and I was laughing, but, but as the, as the show kept going, I started to feel more and more uncomfortable. And I kind of went from like, like this kind of awkward laughter, like, ha 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 ha. And then, you know, eventually I just stopped. I just, you know, was like, why am I forcing myself to like, to, to, you know, to laugh at this person. Like, who am I trying to improve? You know what? I, I'm not finding this funny. I'm finding this really, really terrible. And, yeah, he basically, you know what? Enough of, uh, you know, th- th- these were my impressions. I'm curious now, have any of you ever been to any of his shows? You know, you're a comedian yourself. Yeah. Have you ever been to his shows? And what I've do you think supported of Jim Jeffries before. I, I, I know Jim. Um, and he is... Uh, He's quite a, 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 an intelligent man who really wants to sort of shine a light on on um, 
on these kinds of things. But sadly, his his audience, I'm not sure they always fully understand what he's getting at. And I think th- their reaction kind of colors what his comedy is like. So when you say that there's a lot of men in his audience, yeah, yeah absolutely. His his audience is, the vast majority of them are sort of young men who yeah. like to drink a lot. Yeah. Probably not very respectful of, of women generally. And the extent that he is responsible for that, I think, is what's in question. He should probably be more aware of that and try to try to tailor his act to that end. Um, but what do you think he is like? What is the point th- that he's getting at? That he's just well, I I feel like when I I've heard that bit that you're talking about, and I feel like he's trying to be ironic. I think he's he's trying to make something small and thereby make it big. It's which is an old comedy technique of like if you trivial trivialize something that's terrible you actually can express how terrible it is uh, by inference. So that is what I think he's trying to do. Whether people got that or whether they just laughed out of malice, I don't know. The thing the thing that really troubled me was that, so, you know, he did that bit, which I sort of found funny, but also felt uncomfortable. I mean, I've experienced forms of sexual assault before so you know it did it it was difficult for me to like laugh about it you know and then the thing that really got me as well afterwards though is that he started to attack the women who attack him so he basically had this second bit which was all about the fact that women don't have a sense of humor they don't get his act um they walk out of his shows they you know get on, they get on their internet and write these nasty blogs about me or whatever, you know. And, and the thing, it's very clever because it he basically implies that if you criticize him, you just are not edgy enough. Like, you don't get it. You don't have a sense of humor. Like, he's the rebel with a cause. That's, and, that is and, a, that's and, a poor know. excuse to deflect uh, criticism with. Um yeah, I, I'm, Jim has also suffered from sexual abuse. Um, so he it's not as though he doesn't understand what it's like to be a victim. But I think that like a lot of um, sexual assault victims um, use comedy as a way to deal with what's happened to them. Uh, this may not be an example of that, but it might be. I don't know. I suppose the other question that it implies, I guess, is uh, to what extent would a comedian kind of own the reaction of the audience? Like, like how much of a shield is it to say that, you know, I d- well, what I've said has this meaning if a lot of people in your audience are taking it the other way and are taking it in a way that does appear to be mean or does appear to be, you know, laughing at women or, or demeaning women, even if that is genuinely not your intention, to what extent do you kind of think a comedian kind of owns the reaction or owns the way that the, the an audience might be taking his or her jokes? He doesn't own it at all, but he just might want to compromise anyway for the greater good um yeah yeah there's is this actually part of a, a wider kind of discussion as well there was um an incident i don't know if you saw it michael uh or a discussion around rape jokes at melbourne comedy festival oh, yes, um, I heard about this. <laughs> yes where ray badron um got up and told a joke um which i uh which will which i'll quote which is if you've ever been to a comedy night before then you might know that there's a bit of an unspoken rule in comedy uh, in comedy, right? 
Gay people can tell jokes about being gay. Black people can tell jokes about being black. So I don't know if you can tell just from looking at me, but I can tell rape jokes. Um, and unfortunately, one of uh, well, the reaction from the audience was quite strong. One of the members of the audience um, actually slid under the table mm. um, in quite in silent protest uh, to this, and then the the. Uh, the discussion blew up on social media and both um, both the woman who was involved and Ray Badrin got the kind of fire um, from social media and they you know there was much discussion around it so um so you heard about this incident Michael or? yeah um, Ray Badrin is a good friend of mine uh, Reese Nicholson who was the MC basically you know everybody this is the people who do rape jokes <laughs> <laughs> well it's not a rape joke oh, okay and that's the important thing mm. to to know it is a joke with the word rape in it yes now, I think that a comic should be able to use that word in context to make a specific point uh, without sort of being dragged through the mud. Mm. And when we start censoring people on that level, that's, uh, that's a more dangerous society to me. Was well, he, that's actually what Adrian Truscott, who um, who yes. had a show, and she actually wrote a, uh, an article for us on the Guardian, which she was pretty much saying that as well. It's like yeah. it is a trigger word, um, and it has a lot of as- associations. And so, who has the right? And you know, she doesn't want people to be censored, and that's very similar to what she was saying. But I wonder if this is sort of a wider thing as well. Is is comedy sort of going down that track? Um, why is that suddenly becoming a, a topic to joke about? Because it's what we're not supposed to joke about. Right. So that's exactly what we're going to joke about. Can I just jump in there and say, was he implying that he's been raped or that he's a rapist? There's many joke? ways to take this joke. It's an ambiguous joke, and that's yeah. what I think the problem is. You could take it as he's saying, I am a rapist, so I can do rape jokes. But the way the joke is intended, uh, the way I've taken it, the way he's always explained it to me, is that it's about the assumption that he looks like a rapist. Right. Because when I heard that joke, I assumed that he was saying he'd been raped, basically. And that's why he had the, he was entitled. Because you, you assume the only people who are entitled to make rape jokes are people who've been raped, not are doing the raping. But yeah. to take you up on this point of, um, of censorship, right? Because I, I am definitely not about censoring people. And I've no interest in that at all. Um, and I am, I've never censor um, Jim Jeffries. I, I think he's like, he's totally within his rights to go and make whatever kind of comedy he wants. The thing I think that bothers me, A, was that he, he, it was such a gendered attack. You know, it's one thing to, let's talk about sexual assault. Let's talk about censorship. Let's, but, but is it, is it useful to kind of blame women for like s- supposedly not getting it or whatever? The other thing is, is that what, what insulted me more than anything was this idea that his jokes are edgy because they're not. Th- these, these are the kind of jokes that were being made in the 60s by, you know, fat men in suits in, in, in boardrooms, basically. And this implication that being, you know, being misogynist is somehow exercising this, you know, going to the danger zone for comedy because somehow feminism has oppressed comedy and, you know, put a stranglehold on comedy. That is just total bullshit. (laughs) You are free to, of course, like men are free to go and make these horrible jokes, but there's absolutely no way I'm laughing at it. And there's no way I'm sitting there. I had to, I just, I couldn't sit there. I I would would never assert that, that feminism is trying to censor comedy. That's, that's not at all what I would like to say. And, and secondly, I think we really need to separate what Jim Jeffries does from what Ray Badrin does. I can't, 
defend what Jim Jeffries no, does. Yeah. I don't think I, I should have to. Um, but as for Ray Badron, that night was just a particularly bad night that all sort of went awry and then got um, blown up in the media. Now, that could have happened to just about anyone. Um, it seemed like a kind of strange reaction to to slide under the table. You think if, if that person objected to the joke, I mean, to stand up and, and walk out, I think would have been a reasonable thing to do. But then to sort of try to hijack the whole thing by making this kind of yeah, grand gesture. And, and is that's a little what's bit kind of underreported about that night is, uh, is that's pretty much what happened. Yeah, because it's sort of saying my interpretation of this is going to be sort of forced onto everybody else. When it seems everyone else in that room mm. perhaps understood it the way it was intended. Yeah, well, it, it would seem that they did. I mean, I wasn't there, but I, I, I do know the people who were there. And, um, the, the, you know, I know the people who were on either side of Ray on that night, one of whom is a, a victim of rape. Um, and all of them were, were totally 100% in defense of Ray. Can I ask you, Michael, you, you said there your comedy, your comment was, um, what is comedy supposed to do? What do you think comedy is supposed to do? Comedy is, is I think, a, a, f- a filter for society. So it, we're like comedians, we're like little mollusks. Bip, 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 bip. Just, uh, you know, taking in all of the, the dirt and the mercury and the pollution and, and turning it into something that, that is palatable, that we can discuss, uh, that we can laugh at, that we can step back and look at, you know, um, it, it's our job, basically, to keep m- people thinking freely. And so sexism and misogyny and that's, is part of that? Well, we, we, we have to take the bad with the good. You can't choose what you want to censor. Uh, there's, people vote with their feet as well. And I think you'll find that like, comedy is part of the arts. And the vast majority of comedians are, are feminists and feminist allies. And the vast majority of comedy being made is pro-feminism. It's funny you should say that because we have a great clip of Anzis Ansari on The Late Show talking about being a feminist. I feel like if you do believe that, if you believe that men and women have equal rights, if someone asks you you're feminist, you have to say yes, because that is how words work. Like, you can't be like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm a doctor that uh, primarily does uh, diseases of the skin. Oh, so you're a dermatologist? Oh, no, that's way too aggressive a word. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a, great, uh, a, great, a great grab from Aziz Ansari talking exactly about this topic, about declaring himself as a, as a feminist. Mm. And, uh, and there is a lot of, uh, as you say, comedians who come out in favor of feminism. Yeah. Um, so this is part of the, the joy of comedy? Well, yeah, I mean, as I say, it's our, it's our job to, to filter ideas. And so this is another idea that, that, we, that we filter. That's, that's what we do. And people come to see us do that. And they agree or they don't agree. Um, but, you know, if, if they don't agree, they don't come back. I think, I think the thing, like, the, the, the reason why I'm not kind of, I'm not at all interested in waging any kind of war against Jim Jeffries is because I know that, and all the young men in there who were hooting and cheering and and very happy to hear a man kind of say these things that I think that um, reflect their own frustration. Um, I think the thing that, that, that doesn't upset me is that I know that that attitude is over here and there are many comedians and many, many acts and I'm sure even other acts of Jim Jeffries other than this particular skit that he has um, sits over here and... and and society's moving forward, onwards, progressing that way. And so whatever we have at this tail end here, it doesn't reflect like 
you know, the vast majority of the arts and society. So, you know, and yeah. I think it feels like Jim Jeffries has almost missed an opportunity because if he has this audience of kind of young, somewhat repressed, angry males, I mean, if, if, if comedians are there to take in, you know, the dirt and reflect it back at us, I mean, that's a lot of dirt. And it seems like, the, you know, they're the people who should be trying to shock by sort of shining a light on them and trying to sort of, you know, make them aware of the of this baggage that they hold and try to figure out, you know, why are they so angry and, and like what's... What's behind this kind of loathing of, of this title feminist? I mean, that would be funny. That would be shocking and genuinely dangerous rather than the jokes he's making now. This is the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think about sexism in comedy? Are we taking it all too seriously? Visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com, Guardian Australia Culture, and tell us your thoughts. Even though the truth is stranger than fiction, why aren't documentaries as popular as drama features? We'll talk about that later. This week, the British Museum's new exhibition, Indigenous Australia, Enduring Civilization," opened in London. While the reviews have been stellar, there has been much discussion about the museum's ownership of these pieces. This exhibition also foreshadows a similar one planned for Canberra's National Museum called Encounters. There are likely to be protests in London and also in Canberra. Paul Daly spoke to Shane Mortimer, an elder of the Gambri people on whose land the Australian capital Canberra is built, who said if the Gambri people went to England, killed 90% of the population and everything else that is indigenous to England and sent the crown jewels back to Gambri country as a prize exhibit, what would the remaining 10% of English people have to say about that? This exhibition should not proceed without the permission of the owners of all the items, and that will never be granted. This is part of a big. This is part of a bigger discussion about who owns art and antiquities. Michael, you're an artist as well as a comedian. What do you think? Who owns the art? The creator, the person who bought it. Ugh. Uh. <laughs> a big topic. Look, I can't comment for for everybody else's art. Uh, from my perspective, I think of art as something that I channel, not something that is mine. I feel like art is kind of in the ether, and I just happen to be the thing that, that plucked it out. So I, 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 don't, I don't think it's special to be an, an, an artist, per se. Uh, I think that um, I don't really own what I do. It belongs to everybody. But I am the guy who put in the effort to do it, so it would be nice to eat. <laughs> um, so in that regard, I'm, I'm not very um, sort of sentimental about. So my, when you do an art. artwork, you you're happy to pass it on, never see it again. Yeah. Um, right. That's that's it. The end of the story. Because yeah. I think also what people find uh, really uh, hard to grapple with is a lot of these, particularly national institutions have they own art and they only show 10% of their collection. So yes. even if they own it, for instance, let's say that they bought one of your works, mm. um, it would be tucked away and nobody would ever get to see it, which yeah. surely is probably... Well, you know, that's typical of these fascists. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I, I think that, that the beauty of art is that it's it's kind of transient, that you don't you don't get to have it. You just get affected by it and then you keep that effect and you move on. So I, like when I do comedy shows... Um, my my festival shows are quite artistic, um, and I like to do that. And I like to not record them and just let them disappear at the end of the season, because I like the idea 
but the only thing that's left of it is the impression that it made on the audience, and it doesn't exist in its own right. That will probably not be true of everyone. Th- that's really interesting because I guess filmmakers, uh, authors, and most other artists seem to like to have something to show for their labours at the end. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it helps you to be precious about your work. Uh, it, in the old French schools, they used to say to the, the first-year students, just spend this entire year working on one painting. And they would do that, and then at the end of the year, everybody would set fire to their painting. Because to be precious about your work means that you're not achieving what you could be achieving. It means that you've narrowed what you think you're capable of. So as soon as you form a connection with that piece, you're not an artist anymore. You're, you're a commodity. You're, you're a business. Interesting. What about the, the artifacts and, and the uh, art pieces that we're specifically talking about in the indigenous culture? Monica, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that when items have special significance that might go beyond our Western understanding of art, Michael and I both write and, you know, we work in a space, uh, in a, a commodity space, like, you know, we are paid for our artwork, for our, for our writing. Um, we, 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 we create it for someone else. That's a completely different relationship that you have if you might be creating artworks for religious reasons, spiritual reasons, um, certain objects might be imbued with certain spiritual, um, you know, spirits themselves or, or, or what have you, you know, it might be associated with your ancestors or whatever. These kinds of things, it's difficult, I think, for outsiders to understand the meaning that they might have. And so because... We need to assume that we don't understand and and that we need to doubt ourselves in that and be very, very careful. Mm. I think uh, to take this sort of – I absolutely agree with you and we it is, I guess, a special category. Um, there was also another story that we wrote about recently in The Guardian about an um, illustrated manuscript which came to light from the 16th century, um, which was done in Bruges. It was done um, incredibly detailed um, – by incredible artists, um, and that they don't know who it was actually done for originally. Um, it's disappeared for about 300 years, but then it turned up in the Rothschild collection, um, and the Rothschild family held on to it for a couple of years um, until Hitler um, came in uh, and to Austria and picked up this uh, illuminated, uh, sorry, illustrated manuscript and kept it in his own personal collections. Um, he actually gave it to the library um, in Vienna. Um, and then when the war was over, they, uh, the library said that they weren't going to give it back to the Rothschild family, um, even though it was in question as to where the Rothschild family had actually got it from as what well. What was the manuscript <laughs> about? Um, it was a prayer book. It was an illustrated um, prayer book. There was there's 67 uh, miniatures depicting um, life, um, religious iconography, that sort of thing. It's incredibly beautifully preserved. It's done on vellum. It's um, edged with gold uh, and incredibly rare. Um, the, the, the sort of tail end of that story is eventually they gave it back to the Rothschilds who promptly put it on sale um, at, uh, at Christie's, who sold it, um, and it again sort of disappeared for about... 10, uh, 12 years, went back on the market again and a mysterious bidder uh, bought it who turned out there was um, Australian businessman Kerry Stokes who is now 
said that he will um, display it in uh, at, at the National Library of Australia so that Australians can have a look at this incredibly rare um, old and incredibly beautiful um, illustrated manuscript. So the question, this book has been around for a really long time. It is filled with incredible artwork, but who does it belong to? That's the, that's the question. I suppose something like that, you know, if you, if, you, if you can trace back, if there is someone who can make a moral claim to ownership of it, then, then, you know, they're worth listening to and worth hearing out. And I think if that can be established, then they probably have a really good case of kind of <laughs> claiming ownership over an object such as that. But in the absence of an owner, and, I, and I'm assuming that in, in this case, you know, it may have been owned by a church or it may have been owned by a community that may, you know, no longer really exist anymore. Um, you know, perhaps it does have to go out onto the market. Perhaps it needs to be assigned a value in the way that everything gets assigned a value because what else do you do with it? And you have to just hope that someone, you know, like Kerry Stokes comes along who does believe that rather than this thing being kind of, you know, buried away for decades at mm. a time, mm. you know, it does, it this should... is the best possible outcome, really. Exactly, mm. exactly. But if I can throw a kind of cat among the pigeons here, um, you know, there, there are huge sort of discussions about whether things like the Parthenon marbles should be returned to... Um, to the Greeks. And, and I have a lot of sympathy with, with the people who would argue that because, you know, much as the artworks by Indigenous Australians, these things were looted. These were crimes. And then these are kind of the, the spoils of crimes. And so, you know, the fact that middle-class British people will go to this museum and they'll see both the Parthenon marbles then also these Indigenous artworks and, and, you know, like rub their chins and kind of nod and, and walk away. I mean, they're, they're benefiting from the crimes of their ancestors. But that aside, um, there was the... Uh, the, the destruction of, of, of uh, museums and of artifacts by, um, by ISIS, by kind of ISIS fighters in, in Iraq. And we learned later that many of those artifacts were actually fake and the real ones had been taken from Iraq, probably by, you know, colonial groups, and taken back to museums in Paris and in the UK. And I think that makes it more difficult because, um, you know, if, if, if we believe that these things belong to the Iraqis, well, here's this kind of here are other Iraqis coming along deciding that they want to destroy these. That the, the, This is no, like, this is where this the life of the artwork kind of ends in terms of sort of Iraq's history. Um, but we're incredibly thankful that these particular works of art were taken by the British and are being protected by, by, by museums and by entities who do respect their historical value and the fact that, you know, these are important things. And I guess it raises this question of at what, what point does that connection with an artwork break? At what point does something like, you know, like priceless uh, Assyrian antiquities, at what, what point do they cease to belong to Iraqis or Assyrians? And what, at what point do they become something that humanity owns and the people who care most about them and are most devoted to showing them to people, to protecting them? At what point does ownership transfer to those people? Is, is there? I don't know what if there's an equivalent for artworks, but basically, you know, the the idea behind the World Heritage Organization is that this place is of so much value to the world that we need to keep it contained in the form that it that it's in. And who decides when? Yeah. When's when, when the cutoff point? Mm. Yeah, does that move yeah. that thousand years or backwards? Well, yeah, there's been many examples of of stuff like that that has happened, which at the time. Would have been quite terrible. Like in Egypt, when the when the Christian invaders came in, they chiselled off the faces of all of the cartouches and 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 the different statues, uh, which at the time I'm sure would have been devastating. But now it's like, oh, this is a really fascinating part of history. And this actually is more valuable to me because it has that that aspect. It was part of those battles. It was part mm, of yeah. history. Yeah, but when is the cutoff point for that? 1950. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. What do you think? Who owns art? The creator, the buyer, or someone else? Tell us on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture. Soon we'll be chatting about what we're looking forward to in May, and we want to hear what you're excited about. Now, our documentaries, The Poor Cousins of the Film World. One day a guy drove down my driveway and said, I'm Queensland Gas Company, we're going to sink a world down the back of your place, and if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do about it. That clip is from the documentary The Frack Man, the story of anti-fracking activist Dane Pratsky. When Luke Buckmaster wrote about the film recently, it became one of our most popular stories. But while documentaries like that, that sugar film, and of course Citizen Four get a lot of attention, it seems like documentaries are often treated as the poor cousins of the film world. Arguably, the world's most prestigious film awards, the Oscars, only has two documentary categories, features and short film. And when we talk about lesser-known documentary events at The Guardian, there doesn't seem to be a lot of excitement. Recently, I posted a roundup of documentaries that will be part of the Human Rights Film Festival, and it only got one comment, which was, I'm not sure what would be more depressing, the films or the audience. So, Safi, you're a big fan. Why don't documentaries get the love they deserve? Well, um, I think, I mean, that comment kind of hints at it. I think a lot of people consider them to be um, heavy, like a lot of work. Um, you know, people go to the cinema or they watch movies, I think, for a little bit of escapism. Um, and documentaries kind of do the opposite. They make you look at the world. They make you look at things that are, that are sometimes unpleasant, not always. Um, and so, you know, on, on a Friday night, it's a kind of strange type of person who wants to sit, sit there and watch Frackman or Citizen, Citizen Four. Um, I'd put my hand up as one of those people, but I accept that that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. What, what are your favourite documentaries? What do you enjoy watching? My favourite documentaries? Um, well, I saw one, I saw The Act of Killing a couple of years ago um, by Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, it won Oscar, it won the, uh, the Oscar for Best Documentary um, with good reason. It's, um, yeah, an incredible film about the uh, a genocide that took place in um, Indonesia in the middle of the last century. Um, and he, so what he was doing is he was researching um, this genocide. He was speaking to victims and he found that he was actually coming across a lot of perpetrators of the genocide. Um, and what was very strange was that they actually were not ashamed of what they had done. They were really proud of it because it's this strange situation where the people who committed the genocide, they, it, I mean, in a sense, they won. Like the genocide was was successful in, in shaping that country's political culture. And so the way that they're looked at it in Indonesia is not as, you know, mass killers, but as heroes, as people who exterminated the communist threat, even though that threat was more often than not just students or anyone who kind of exhibited left-wing views. And so he had this idea that was an absolute stroke of genius, which was to, to get these perpetrators together and have them uh, reenact their crimes in any way they chose, and he would film it. And so... These, these, like, this bizarre mix of people got together and they would reenact scenes of their killing, some of them as westerns, some of them as musicals. And without giving too much away, in the process of reenacting the genuinely terrible crimes, they're kind of, they're forced to examine their own consciences and it culminates in perhaps the leader of one of these killing bands, um, you know, looks staring down the camera and asking Josh, like, Josh, like, is what I did wrong? Like, should I not have done this? And it's just... An incredible, incredible film, and I think any, everyone should go and watch Shall it. I mean, that's the power of documentaries. They they really take the story behind the headlines and examine it and and look deeper into it. And it, it's curious that people don't get more engaged. Monica, are you a big doco fan? 
Um, I wouldn't say... I don't know if I would say I'm a big doco fan, but I mean, I think that we have to be careful about equating the lack of box office success that documentaries have to um, it being not not having any impact or even popularity in, in society because I think a lot of documentaries end up going to television and, you know, you can even count a one-hour documentary on Four Corners as a documentary. So, and, and these have a lot of audiences... A lot of people are talking about them afterwards. You you know, now we have even shorter and shorter documentaries that get shared on, that get put on YouTube and shared around. Um, lots of activist organizations make short videos. So I think that this genre of documentary is kind of, it, it's, it's no longer just has to be, we don't have to talk about it in just this kind of two hour, you go to the cinema, you pay for a ticket and watch a documentary. I mean, as an art form, it's... It, it's always been kind of on TV and it's all, it's now expanding and, if anything, more popular than ever. Well, this is it. I mean, there's countless channels, television channels, just you know dedicated to documentaries. But it's strange that it doesn't translate to, to box office. I, I, think, I think, and there's a perception that, you know, when you're going to go to the cinema, you're going to see what the sort of very standard TV documentary, which is constrained by budget and by time. And it often kind of follows a very distinct pattern, but... I think lately we've seen um, a lot of people trying to use the kind of feature film length of a documentary and using that form to do really interesting things. So there was the documentary, another another Best Picture winner at the Oscars, oh, Best Documentary uh, winner, was uh, The Cove, um, which was... One of my favourite documentaries Sure, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and sort of managed to, to tackle <laughs> this you know interesting story about dolphin killings in Taiji by setting up the whole film as a kind of... Uh, Almost a whodunit, or or like an, an adventure film, like a weird kind of Ocean's Eleven, but trying to sort of, yeah, but trying to understand what's happening in this secretive cove. Um, and they could have done that in a really straight way that you might see on Foreign Correspondent, but they were able to use that that, that documentary form to do it in a much more creative and interesting way. I, to me, it seems like it's a it's almost like the journalistic tradition of creative nonfiction, or, or you know that yeah. that you know being able to explore a story in a narrative form. But interesting, I always think as well that. The films that do well, again, I'm using the Oscars as some sort of weird yardstick, but, you know, they're always biofilms or, you know, Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf. They always do incredibly well and people love those. So why don't they like the cold, hard reality on screen? Michael Workman, any thoughts? Oh, you never give people reality. Uh, Really? (laughs) (laughs) Never. They don't like it. Right, okay. Mm. What do you mean? You can give people reality, uh, but you have to wrap it up in a lot of sugar. Is that com- going sugar. back to comedy? Well, I, I can only really speak from from comedy. Mm-hmm. Why but, is that? Uh, do you think? Why do people think? Why do you think people find staring at reality kind of in the raw to be a difficult thing? Oh, because it's a miserable world, and we're all trying to distract ourselves from it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> something I think comedians seem to kind of intuit a lot more than others. I, <laughs> yeah. Genuinely, I mean, they seem to be kind of, as you say, people who are a lot more alive to the kind of depravity of, of the world in some way. Yeah, well, that's why you know there's this this dichotomy where you go on stage and you're happy and fun, and you go off stage and you're miserable. Uh, that's that's true of virtually all comedians, and the reason for that is in order to do the thing that we do, you have to see things how they are, and when you see things how they are, it's depressing. Sure. And that's what documentaries represent. And I love documentaries, and it probably makes a lot of sense. Are there any 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 documentaries that are comedic in some way? Did, did any that spring to mind immediately? None that really spring to mind. Michael Moore is occasionally like quite. Um, 
Uh, quite funny. Yeah, and there's The King of Kong, which was that documentary about um, the kind of competitive world of arcade gaming. Um, mm. and, and that was that was funny, not because anyone, I think, was trying to... Not because it was a sort of... It was done, you know, by a comedian or anything, but I think it was because this whole world was... The whole situation was so absurd that it was, it was unintentionally funny how seriously these people yeah. took this video game and the fact that people would mortgage their homes so they could spend more time practicing... You know, um, well, you Donkey know, Kong on an arcade game. That's why they say it's funny because it's true. Because if you get the truth right, it is very funny. Sure, yeah. I think, though, we're also seeing the rise of, like, you know, talking about kind of reality and how depressing that is. I think we're seeing a rise of activist films or, or which have an activist tone about it. So there are, you know, lots of films where basically the point of the film is to make you feel... Um, like there's, you have the power to do something about this issue. So it's both supposed to kind of be reality, like shock you about something, but there's always this tone at the end, like, here's what you can do. Like when you leave the cinema, go and do A, B and C, go to this website, sign up and, you know, take the movement forward. And there's always this kind of like triumphant, we're in the middle of a revolution here, people. So, you know, it's, it's, so there it's was an interesting There was like a lot thing. of that in the early 2000s. Mm, Food Inc. and The Cove yeah, had the same thing. Yeah, Super Size Me. The yeah. Corporation and Fog of War and, and all of Michael Moore's stuff that came out after September 11. Uh, you know, there was, there was a really big call to arms from documentaries. People were getting really into documentaries at the time and then it just kind of stopped. So, yeah, you think that that's actually faded out now? Yeah, yeah. I do get that sense. Yeah, right. But it may also explain, too, why why films have so much more appeal is because, you know, they're not necessarily that didactic. There's no one trying to kind of send you a message. It can often be just here's a you know, great story that might touch on, on sort of, you know, more lofty themes than... Fast and Furious 7. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For all our film and documentary news and reviews, both in Australia and around the world, head over to theguardian.com click on culture, then click on film. Now it's time for our regular fangirl segment where we share the things that we are most looking forward to each month. Monica, what's in your diary for May? I'm going to try and check out Courtney Barnett who is playing shows um, off her debut album. Everyone is raving about it. It's fantastic. She's she's a new kind of um, rock star for Australia, I think. What do you think of the album? Um, I think there's some really great songs on there. I think she's an amazing lyricist. I kind of, um, I kind of described her as kind of like the Seinfeld of the music world because she can just take these really ordinary things, but make very clever, funny, um, enjoyable um, lyrics, like writing lyrics out of them. And I heard "Depressed" is that the, one of the songs? It's yeah, a brilliant song. Yeah, it's about you know real estate of all things. I mean, who would have thought you could make that kind of worth singing about and she manages to do it in a very wry, funny way. It's crazy that she's kind of exploded internationally as well. She seems quite Australian. Do you think there's something in that? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I think that um, Australia's always, whenever there's someone who's just so that good, they're inevitably going to find their way. Inevitably, people overseas now more than ever, are going to find find th- that talent. Yeah, I think she was described by, I don't remember the publication, but one publication called her um, the next Bob Dylan, which I guess is kind of the kiss of death for her career now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good while it lasted. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you know Courtney, do you like Courtney Barnett? I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll go home and uh, Google it. <laughs> awesome. Check it out. Awesome. Michael Savvy, what are you looking forward to in May? Uh, in May, there is, of course, the Sydney Writers' Festival, 
which is going to be um, a great few days. I, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to see yet, um, but I'm looking forward to pouring over the program and um, you know shelling out my eight or nine hundred dollars to try to see three or four events. Um, yeah, so that'll be uh, that'll be good. Then there's also, I believe, on the first of May, uh, the head-on uh, photography festival begins too, which is always always worth a couple of afternoons of yeah. Mm. Documentaries, photography—it's all about the real thing. Huh? Well, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just sort of um, yeah. I think the in- I look quite like the World Press Photo Exhibition too, but head-on is kind of a great contrast to it because the shots are a lot more sort of considered and artistic, and, and you know you can really come away with um, a lot to think about from a show like that. That festival's grown so much in a very, very short time. Yeah, well, I, I'm I kind of a late adopter to it. I only know it as kind of the really big festival. But was it was it once sort of run out of someone's backyard kind of thing? Well, yeah, when it, it's only been going for about five years, I think well, it is, and it's again just taken off. Must be a real appetite for that kind of thing, I think, with people. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. My what I'm looking forward to in May is the vivid, vivid live, vivid live, vivid music, and uh, vivid lights and vivid ideas, which happens uh, at the end of May. It's such a great winter festival. I love getting down to Circular Quay and doing the light walk. It's really great fun. But they have an incredible lineup of musical artists, including Daniel Johns, who I'm dying to see in his only two concerts, and uh, and vivid ideas, which is. I think a bit of an unsung hero uh, in a lot of ways because there's incredible speakers that come out. Um, again, the lineup this year is fantastic. It seems like you know everyone's coming, and there's they're also um, taking over Australian uh, Technology Park with gamers for um, a, a festival as well. So there's heaps going to be happening in Sydney. Can I jump in with one more, which include um, on May 24, uh, Sufjan Stevens is playing one of his. Oh, I, believe, I love Sufjan. Yeah one of like five shows at the Opera House um, and you know I think do whatever you need need to do to get a ticket to that even if it includes Criminal Acts <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and did you, you like there. that album? Carrie and Lowell his new album yeah I did yeah I kind of I'm embarrassed by how much I like that album um, <laughs> and so I don't want to begin talking about it I cannot talk highly enough <laughs> of Sufjan Stevens and Michael Last but not least, what are you have got a very busy month coming up. I do. I have a very busy month. I'm heading to the Perth Comedy Festival, so I'm going to be eating a lot of uh, a lot of very greasy fast food chicken, and that's uh, that's what I have to be thankful for. It's your hometown. <laughs> yeah, it's my home home stomping ground. I got to tell you, WA does some pretty good greasy chicken. All right, <laughs> so that's what I'm that's what I'm that's what I'm looking forward to. Is there a place in particular for people listening in Perth you recommend they should go and get? Ah, uh, look, they're all pretty good. Sure, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 somewhat ashamed to admit that I'm a massive fan of Chicken Treat, which is kind of like a a a, a lesser Red Rooster, if you can imagine, but better. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I'll be doing. Perth, home of the world's best chicken. <laughs> I don't know why we do it, but we do. I miss it. Sure. I miss it so much. <laughs> My arteries do not. No. Uh, you guys chicken fans? You chicken fans? Yes. Yeah. I yes. like Korean uh, fried chicken. Oh, yeah, you said it. That's some good oh, chicken. so delicious. Yeah. So that's it for this month. Thank you for joining us. If you head over to theguardian.com and click on culture, you'll find our culture podcast page with a list of everything we've talked about today, links to the articles, and much more information. Come and tell us what you think on the Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture, on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture, or send us your culture pics on Instagram, GDN Oz Culture. Talk to all of us on Twitter. Follow me on at Alex Spring. Follow Monica on at M underscore Onika Tan. 
follow Michael Safi on at Safi Michael and Michael Workman on at Workman Comedy. For now, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Monica. And thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you also to our producer, Miles, who is doubling up as our technical wizard, Jason, is off gallivanting. And we'll see you here next month on the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. 